0: Sometimes you need someone to be around you. Someone to sit down and pour you, show you. But sometimes saying goodbye to familiar folks is the only way. Sometimes that's when you finally find your space.
1: Welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Pellegrini, recording in Tokyo, and with me as always in Fukuoka, Japan, is my co-host, Stephen Lyman. We're both certified shochu and awamori professionals, published authors, and we enjoy spirits from Okinawa at least as much as we enjoy spirits from Kyushu. We've been exploring the wonderful world of Japanese spirits for a combined three decades, and we are very excited to share them with you through this podcast.
0: Stephen, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Christopher. Very happy to be back in the studio. It's been a little while, and uh, this is one of my favorite activities. Do you have a little update. As our listeners know, we did run a home cocktail competition. We have collected the recipes. We're finalizing the top five based on ingredient lists. And uh, in a couple of weeks, we have Matt Alt coming down to Fukuoka from Tokyo, as well as a couple of other very good friends of ours coming into Fukuoka and we are setting up a professional bartender to make the drinks for us. We're going to document it and we will ha- announce the winners once that's finished. That'll be happening the weekend of April 15th. So we should have uh, an announcement shortly after that, just to give everybody an update on, on where we are. We haven't forgotten about you. We just needed to secure a time and place to make it happen.
1: Excellent. It's good that we've got uh, announcements that are imminent in terms of explaining who came up with something amazing and how we can share it with the rest of the world. That's going to be fun to uh, put out there and reward people appropriately.
0: For sure. And it's it's uh, it's timely with this topic that we're discussing today because when I was in New York City recently, several Awamori makers were in town for Vin Expo, a big, big trade show. And they had left samples with Andy May, one of our favorite bartenders. And uh, when I visited him at his bar over that weekend, he made nothing but uh, Awomori Wrists on Classic Cocktails. Nice. Yeah. So, us doing an Awamori episode, which is, in fairness, long overdue. The last time we did a complete episode just on Awamori was January 2021. It was episode number three. Yeah. This is episode 56. Now, we did mention it a lot during our Shimazaki episode, which was episode 24, which is all about spirits made on outlying islands in Japan. But the besides the fact that we're overdue, the other reason that I wanted to record on this topic at this time is because Christopher has just gotten back from his annual sojourn to Okinawa and so how was that trip Christopher
1: The retreat the annual retreat was lovely I was not happy to come back to where I actually live which I'm sure a lot of people are like are you kidding me you were you're upset about returning to Tokyo Japan which is probably on half the world's bucket list But I'm not going to lie, it is really nice to be in Okinawa at any time of the year and especially during the late winter, early spring when we go to avoid the hay fever season here in Tokyo and I just love it down there. I really feel like that pace suits me, which probably makes sense given that I grew up in a town of about 2,200 people and Naha is a little closer to that population (laughs) when compared with downtown Tokyo, Japan obviously. So I guess it might make some sense that I'm more tuned to the slower life um, even if it is near the ocean rather than in the mountains of Vermont like where I grew up. But yeah, it was great. Um Naha and then made it out to Kumejima for the first time as well, which is an outlying island uh, that's part of Okinawa prefecture.
0: Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I've I uh, I'm sorry I couldn't come down and join you for a weekend like I did last year and the year before. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, So, but hopefully uh next year that will be rectified. And I'm sure that we will find ourselves in Okinawa at some point this year because we have a lot of uh, distilleries that we need to visit. Absolutely. Uh, so, we've got to plan some trips. But getting back to your hometown and the small city or small town feel, once you get out of Naha, Okinawa just has that feeling, right? Almost anywhere you go, other than near the military bases where there's stuff built up, it's, it's really nice small town life. Mm-hmm. So, I totally understand why it feels uh, more more comfortable for you than than Tokyo. I mean, I lived in New York City for 16 years and Tokyo still intimidates me. Yeah, it's a lot. So, I can only imagine coming from Vermont.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yep. But, um, you know, since we are talking about Okinawa and this is an Awamori episode, um, let me just rewind to episode 3 a little bit just for everyone's sake both people who are new to awamori who maybe who have never heard of it before and those who are revisiting basically awamori is the indigenous spirit and many people will argue that it's japan's original spirit that originated down in the udyukyu kingdom or what is now known as okinawa prefecture and uh this overview is just going to be really about the ingredients and the production process. So rule number one, you must use black koji. You can't use yellow or white like is used in other parts of the spirits industry. Black koji only. All of the rice, and only rice can be used as a starch source for awamori, uryukyu awamori, all of the rice must be kojified, to use that word that Stephen and I occasionally bat around for lack of a you know because we don't want to use the word inoculated or or anything that sounds very kind of scary like that um but all of the rice must have koji grown in and on it and it must be pot distilled you cannot use a column still or the type of still that is used to make korean soju the type of still that's used to make vodka for instance and there are no additives allowed so it's a very simple although very difficult to make style of rice spirit. And if you want to call it, do awamori, then of course it has to be made in
0: Okinawa prefecture. When I first discovered shochu and awamori, of course, is essentially under the same tax law in Japan. So it's really part and parcel of the same, I guess, big bucket category of what we've taken to calling koji spirits. The rules around awamori are so narrow relative to shochu. They really are. And it took a little while for me to internalize and understand what's the clear differentiation. And what makes awamori and rice shochu different is the requirement to use black koji and that all of the rice has to be kojified or inoculated with koji prior to going into the fermentation, where virtually all rice shochu is made in the, uh, The two-stage fermentation process that we talk so much about, where you start with a rice fermentation and then you add your main ingredient. In awamori, you're starting with koji inoculated rice. You're adding more koji inoculated rice, and it just it's a hundred percent koji spirit. So zen koji is what would be said in Japanese, and you do find zen koji rice shochus, but they tend to be very very different in how they express from awamori for a, a wide variety of reasons based on what kind of rice is being used, what kind of koji, what kind of yeast, what kind of still. All that. But um what's so cool to me though is how diverse Awamori can be, despite the fact that it's black koji rice pot distilled, no additives. Right. Mm-hmm. There's so many things that the distillers can do to tweak their recipes, to tweak their fermentation process, the distillation, the aging, to get to these really, really uh this very broad flavor and aroma profile that you almost don't expect from something that's just made one way, right? Um, right. Anyway, that, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit there, but that's that to me is what's very very cool about this specific style of of uh, of spirit of koji spirit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are a lot of different choices that the distillery, the Kurabito and the Toji can make throughout the process to vastly change the flavor and aroma profile of the resulting spirit. We're talking about choices related to the the koji strain. Of course, it is all black koji, but there's not just one strain, right? There are multiple different, uh, there are different strains of black koji that behave in different ways. And then there are also, of course, choices that can be made with yeast and and fermentation temperature and duration. And of course, aging vessel and the amount of filtration and the type of filtration so all of these things much as we talk about in the shochu world are applicable to the awamori industry as well and i think that one interesting thing that steven and i have gotten greater have a little bit more insight into is the types of koji that can be used and so there's for instance there's at least two different types of black koji that are commonly used in the industry. One, of course, creates more acidity during the fermentation. The other one can be used to highlight, uh, you know, certain flavor components within the fermentation. And they're often used in tandem. So when distilleries will order their koji, their, their seed koji, for making koji in their own distillery before the fermentation, they will have a specific request for the Koji Maker. This is a third-party company that will mix together a certain percentage of one strain and another, and maybe even more than that, to the specifications of the distillery for whatever brand they happen to be focusing on. Now, my uh, suspicion is that they generally use the same ratio or mixture for all of their brands, but of course, there are also there is also a little bit of reticence there on the part of the distilleries in terms of sharing that specific information with anyone really because they want to um well, it's considered a corporate secret, obviously. So that's a little bit more about black Koji. Just to, you know, just to get our feet wet a little bit here. Now we're let's move into the fermentation process that is based so heavily on black koji.
0: As Christopher said, there are different strains of black koji that are usually blended at the specifications of the distillery. And he mentioned creating acidity, and the other is, is the flavor and aroma. But what the koji's main purpose in alcohol production in Japan is for sacrification, for creating sugars. And so the koji strain that makes a high acidity fermentation that's necessary to protect. The fermentation due to the high temperatures in Okinawa the high temperatures and humidity, we know that black mold and other other nasties like hot humid environments right uh, and you don't want those joining the party and ruining the fermentation so you need that acidity and that's that's one of the big benefits of using black Koji over yellow, which is used predominantly in sake production. but the the strain of black Koji that creates high acidity isn't necessarily particularly strong at creating sugars. And so the reason that you're using another strain of black koji is for the high sacrification ability of that. They work together, these two strains of black koji, to maximize the acidity and the sacrification qualities while creating the aromas that are expected from uh, awamori lovers. But what's unique about the awamori process in the spirits world is that they're actually using what's almost more like a sake production method. If you were making a sake that was 100% Koji inoculated rice, in that you don't just put all of your koji inoculated rice into the fermentation and let it run. You're actually building it in stages. And it's not a two-stage fermentation like shochu typically is, but it'll be, and Christopher, you might know these specifications and it probably varies by distillery, but I think it's something like 50% of the in the total volume goes in, in this in the starter fermentation. And then you're adding another 20% and then another 30%, or vice versa over several days as you're building out the full fermentation amount. And that, again, is one of those considerations that the distiller can make to get different profiles based on when he's adding and how much he's adding at what time point. And then, of course, everything else, all the other decisions matter too. But uh, Christopher, I guess you've you've been in several distilleries recently that uh, I think I haven't even been to. So have you seen some variation on that process, like how much rice is going in when?
1: Yeah, I mean, there certainly are distilleries that do put it all in at the same time, and then they let it run. They control the temperature. They make sure that they are aerating the the moromi and trying not to let it spike too high, the temperature. Um, it's funny because I ask the same questions at a lot of places, like, what, is, what temperature is too high? And they all have different opinions about what, <laughs> what that could be. I suspect it's because they don't really want to let out the information about what their true range is. For instance, I was just at kumejima no kumeisen on kumejima or kume island and that's one of the larger distilleries in the awamori industry and they just have a you know a veritable flock of these gigantic vats these same stainless steel vats where there are just each one has a 20-day fermentation going in it you know and they that date that timeline about three weeks total for the fermentation. I've seen as long as four weeks. And uh they are really kind of hands off with it. They're often open fermentations. I mean the the amount of acidity produced by black Koji is pretty remarkable and very good at protecting, as Stephen s- said, the fermentation from the do duels that are lurking in the air and the atmosphere around. Um, so it's it's a pretty, just open, pure, very natural process, as, or as natural as these processes can be taking place indoors. Um, but the windows tend to be open, the floors tend to be spick and span, but everything else is kind of open to interpretation, honestly. That was something that I saw in both distilleries. I also went to Yoneshima on um, Kumejima, which is close, a little closer to the port a much smaller distillery, tiny by comparison. And they also had similar fermentation duration. But uh, probably the most interesting discovery I made was during my, I think it's probably my fifth or sixth trip to Chukul, which is a distillery that you and I have visited together. And they are very creative folks Probably the only distillery in the world, as we've said before, that has a pottery studio inside of it, and one of the brands that they make that we love, Yoka Koji, I have asked a number of times about how that Koji process works, and I finally got some better information you know it just sometimes it takes asking the same questions repeatedly or in slightly different ways during different visits in different contexts, and you get you eventually get to the answer that you want now this Koji yokka Koji the name of this brand and it is available in the states it's a 43 percent ABV awamori Yoka Koji means four-day koji now if you've been listening to this podcast long enough or really any other podcast about Koji fermented drinks from Japan you'll know that a two-day Koji process is typical it's basically the rule now what they do is a four day koji so they double the length of that process and I've had other distilleries ask me about it mm. they're like have you seen it and my answer has always been no i haven't i've asked about it but um i finally saw a picture of it okay and the, guess what color the koji is
0: <laughs> um i think it's a trick question it is sort of i'm gonna say black because we are talking talking about black I know, but I, well, see, having having worked with black koji i know that that may not be how it appears on the surface
1: it is talcum powder white yep yep yep. isn't that nuts so the way that they make this they call it um shijiru which is is i think it's a riff on shikuasa which is a citrus fruit but it's it's a shijiru style and this is an old style of making koji now normally when you make koji you're gonna you're gonna wash the rice you're gonna steam it and then you're going to inoculate the rice with the, with the seed koji, right? That's pretty typical for pretty much anywhere. But until basically the 1950s, that wasn't really how they always did it down in, in Okinawa. They often would forego the rice washing step. They would just put the raw rice into water. They would just leave it in there for 15 hours, 24 hours And this is an old style that Chuko brought back for producing yokakoji. Now, the really cool thing that happens when you do that is, as you can imagine, a bunch of chemical reactions start to take place and a lot of acidity is released into that water. And that water actually is not just 100% pure spring water. They've actually added some of that acidic water from the previous batch to it. And it really creates a rich environment on this. Of course, it's long grain rice from Thailand, which is typical and crushed. It's broken. It's got a lot of surface area that can be attacked by the koji later on. But this long soaking apparently creates the ideal environment for the koji to really get in there later. Hmm. So they'll drain the water off it. They'll keep some of it, this, very, this acidic water. They'll keep some of that for the next batch. And then they inoculate the koji. Now the koji mold grows more, more than on the outside. It really gets in there, is the way that it was explained to me. More so than what we're accustomed to seeing. Hmm. And this photo of the koji that I saw, it really does look like they rolled the, these rice grains around in you know granulated sugar or something. It was so purely snow white. And the fermentation as well. I saw a photo of that. And the fermentation is incredibly, you know, the foam is very white. It's not what we expect from, it's not what we're used to seeing from a typical awamori fermentation that tends to get much, much darker, obviously. Um, So that was a huge, huge discovery for me. Um, I, it took me a while to get that much information from them, but uh, I'm excited that I was able to. So, yes, it's Yokka Koji is in a black bottle with a black label and a black cap and really, really uh, stoic and sleek and strong. But actually, it's really interesting because that black Koji, the way that it's grown, it expresses in a very different manner, um, which was news to me.
0: That- explains so much you and i both love that brand i don't keep many awamori ishobin at home uh because i tend to like uh pot aged awamori so i keep lots of pots at home but i do keep Koji 1.8 liter bottles uh on premises because it's just such a beautiful spirit uh and i whenever people would ask me all right so why is this different because it 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 expresses so differently from other awamori i was like well it's the four-day koji process right that's all i knew yeah it's actually much more than that when you're using raw rice for the koji propagation. That's just, and I'd, I'd heard of that as as something that was done in the past. Mm-hmm. And as you said, it's fallen out of favor. It's much easier to work with steamed rice. It's much more stable. Yes. But that's amazing that that's how they're making that. And, I, and you're right. Every time you go to the distillery, you need to ask the same question in a slightly different way and you will eventually get to the truth. Yep. I'm not at liberty to share what I learned, but the last time I went and worked at Yamato Zakura, which was season 10, been there for 10 years, I learned something new about one of his most popular brands and I am not allowed to share it. (laughs) <laughs> even with Christopher, but it's, it's that level of, of, you know, getting in with these distillers and, and getting to know them and learning of their processes that you just, it's just peeling back an onion. And earlier I said, you know, that awamori is made much more in a sake way. And I said, it is sort of a definitive way that they build their fermentations with multiple batches of Koji inoculated rice. And of course that's not true. There's always going to be exceptions. Right. And as Christopher said, some distillers just put all that Koji inoculated rice in at the beginning and just let it run. And others are going to be much more thoughtful and building that fermentation in a, in a more, uh, in, in I guess because they are, they're thinking about, they don't want to overload the yeast with too much sugar too quickly. Mm-hmm. And they want the fermentations to stay active and run longer for whatever it is that they're trying to achieve. And so they'll build it over time, which is what sake brewers tend to do when they're making uh, their fermentations for for sake. Sure, sure. Yeah, th- that's so cool to learn about. Yoko Koji that way. And and folks, you learned it at the same time I did. Because Christopher did not share that story with me.
1: We haven't had much chance to talk, honestly, recently, other than in uh, that's, you know meetings that's with fair. other folks, too many people on the phone at
0: the same time, too many chefs in the kitchen. Right, right. I think um, you know, talking about Yoko Koji and talking about Chuko, that's a natural transition to yeast because I don't know anybody in the Awamori business that's more creative with yeast than Chuko. Fair point. It's another Yokokoji brand that's the mango yeast version that was, they isolated yeast off of mangoes from a tree on the distillery property and they started making ahomori from it. Like who does that?
1: Yep, absolutely. <laughs> they have a new tasting room. Uh, I Well, I shouldn't say that. What it is, is it's a, this little kind of, they call it the Chuko Academy or something like that, where, you know, there are th- people's dissertations on the wall and that sort of thing uh, research that has been done to contribute to the understanding of the chemical processes behind what we taste and what we smell in awamori and there's a he does a really good tasting a, a great flight where they're using yeast to express banana and they're using yeast to make awamori that expresses with strong melon components in it and it it's a really really solid casing that they've put together for, I think, some of their more favored customers. So I'm sure the next time you go there, you're going to get that that nice um, explanation as well. And, you know, with this understanding of the Yoka Koji, this crazy brand that is so hard to make and takes so long to make just to make the Koji itself, you really do gain a new appreciation. And I think you know we've talked about these aroma compounds in the past, but there is something I don't say this very often about Yoka Koji, but there is something about the sweetness that reminds me a little bit of whiskey and then there's this lovely pear note like this Japanese pear note that is released by the by the Koji action or that long propagation that they perform and I don't know. I, I just haven't found anything else like it. It's really unique. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I've ever met somebody who has tried, somebody from the trade who has tried Yoka Koji and not been blown away w- by it, honestly. Yep. Um, it really knocks people's socks off.
0: I completely agree. It, it's it's a very, very fascinating uh, spirit. But this isn't an episode about Yokokoji. Koji. I think we'll probably do a Chuko episode before too much longer. That's true. Yeah. I got a little excited there. <laughs> Just to maybe take a step back, now we did a, a yeast episode, uh, uh, episode 41, all about yeast. And Right. So, p- if people want to learn more about the yeast aspect of shochu and Aomori production, please go back and have a listen. But I think is important for people to keep in mind is that virtually all yeast used to make alcohol is the cervecie And that is essentially what's used to make beer, wine, spirits, sake, everything. But there are beer yeasts, there are wine yeasts, there are spirits yeasts, right distilling yeasts, there are sake yeasts. And the reason that there are different variations on the theme is because some of those yeasts don't like acidity. Some of them don't like high alcohol fermentations. Uh, some of them express different aroma profiles that are favorable for wine or for beer. Or for spirits. And we've had beer and wine yeast shochu, and they express very differently than a distiller's yeast shochu. Mm -hmm. When you're in Okinawa, you're talking about a hot, humid environment, very high acidity fermentations. These are long fermentations, they're high alcohol fermentations. So you would think that the variety of yeasts available to the distillers to make a reliable product is relatively narrow. And yet that doesn't seem to be the case Mm -hmm. because just at Chuko, you get so many different yeasts that are being used to make all of these different aroma profiles. Right. And that's just one distillery. You've got 47 distilleries, virtually all of whom are making multiple products uh, with different profiles. And whether or not they're using the same yeast or different yeast or how they're making the changes, the yeast is a big part of this. And it's got to be yeast that can handle that environment. Asaka yeast is not going to do well in, in Okinawa <laughs> in a high acidity high ter- high fermentation temperature yeah definitely not and so the the, the yeast is certainly a, a, a huge component here and as christopher and i have been learning a lot about yeasts in shochu we also have a lot to learn i think still about yeast usage in in awamori sure certainly yes absolutely and
1: that, i said before the fir- i i mean you just kind of echoed what I said the, they are pretty long fermentations. I mean, especially when compared with many other alcohol, um, traditions, uh, certainly when compared with whiskey at any rate. And so every distillery will have a different set of metrics or different ways of figuring out when they think the the fermentation is done. And then it's a, it's pumping that that fermentation towards the still and into the still. And of course, pot stills over in
0: Okinawa are pretty interesting. They are. They're, they're quite unique in that they're horizontal pots rather than kind of upright pots. We're, we're used to seeing pot stills that, you know, like I'm sure when people hear pot still, they imagine a classic whiskey still, mm-hmm. right? Copper still, bulb, kind of an onion bulb shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the shape the shape of the pot itself can vary widely. Uh, distillery to distillery, or even still distill within a distillery, but they tend to be sort of more upright with a relatively little surface area compared to the depth of the fermentation that would be inside the pot. And in Awamori, they do it quite a bit differently in that these are, it's almost like the pot's been laid on its side. And so you have a lot more surface area during the boil. put pictures in the show notes but these horizontal pots are are pretty unique to to Okinawa to to Awamori production.
1: Yeah, and most you're right most distilleries do use them for instance at Kumejima no Sen, they had I think 5 of these horizontal pots and then they did have one upright or what we would consider to be more standard pot still in the shochu world but that one's only used to make that brand that I think five distilleries are making right now called Imuge And Imuge is another historical uh, reference that I think probably should be a, perhaps part of a future podcast episode. But they do reserve that more traditional shochu-style pot for a spirit that is made from rice, koji, sweet
0: potatoes, and kokuto sugar. Yeah, that definitely deserves its own episode in the future. Thank you for reminding me of that. The still designs, obviously very widely and it's a, it's another aspect of this and and typically awamori is single pot distilled right right i was reflecting on this actually as i was coming up with this episode as you know things i wanted us to talk about and people from okinawa generally are a little bit iconoclastic they're less willing to just play by the rules and and conform to what people expect of them and One example of that, I think, is that awamori is almost always, at least if it's younger awamori, and we'll get into the different types of awamori that are commonly available, but it's typically bottled at 30% rather than 25%, right? The government used tax regulation to hammer the shochu industry into conformity at 25% alcohol. And the awamori makers are like, we don't care. We're going to do it how we want to do it. And in some ways, that's where Yunaguni with their 60% alcohol as well, they're like, this is what we do. You're just going to have to let us do it. And th- I think it's the same thing where sometimes awamori makers will distill more than once to make their brands. Now, they, they don't mind losing the designation as awamori mm-hmm. because they just they want to make cool things. Mm-hmm. It's that, you know, zig when others are zagging that makes the industry so interesting. They seem much more freewheeling uh, in some ways, at least some of the distilleries than, than, uh, than shochu makers by and large. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you think that's fair or not. It's just some, kind of something I was thinking about over the last couple of days. There
1: certainly is. I think the one thing that resonated with me with what you just said was that there is certainly a sticking to how we've we've always done things type of, you know, gumption that a lot of the makers down there have just having toured Ikehara out on Ishigaki, for instance, and they still, I, you know, that whole distillery could have been transplanted from the 1930s, for all I know, it really feels like that. And they're just doing it their way. And they don't really care what anybody else says. And I think that makes, that's a very interesting thing. And that's why people from all over the alcohol industry turn it into a pilgrimage. They go out there to see how it's done in this incredibly raw format. I think it probably takes some takes some guts to open that up to the world. Um, but they, they are fine with it now and people travel from all over. And
0: yeah, maybe that's kind of what you're talking about, how they kind of do it their own way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess when you're off on an island on your own, you're just going to do it your way. Sometimes out of necessity and sometimes just because that's how you do it. Yep. I guess maybe transitioning to the styles of awamori that are typically consumed. I guess the two big buckets would be what is called iponshu, which is basically unaged awamori for the most part. It's, it's younger than three years. It's not aged. It's usually aged in an inert vessel. It's consumed young. And then the alternative being what I consider unbelievable spirit is the, the kusu or what would be in japanese usually called koshu or aged spirit aged awamori aged alcohol and that's by a uh, rule has to be at least three years old to be uh, called kusu and the drinking styles for the two are are quite a bit different right
1: sure certainly yeah kusu of course can be found at 30 percent abv but more often than not it's packaged closer to genshu strength mm-hmm. Um, often that's 43, 44, especially if you go to a decent restaurant or izakaya or bar in Okinawa that specializes or is very proud of their selection that they have on the menu, they will often have it at, at genshu strength. And because of the the texture, because it's so heavy, because it's so round, and often be- also because it's so lightly filtered, some of the fatty oils and acids are still in there. The umami quotient is off the charts. And it's really nice to just sip straight out of very, very small vessels poured from also very small, uh, what are called kara kara, or um, what do you call it? A little awamori pot, I guess? A little awamori kettle, maybe? And that's pretty typical. But uh, uh, obviously, it's quite a bit more expensive than
0: ipbanshu that Stephen just described. Um, What are the typical ways to drink ipbanshu? Yeah, in Okinawa, I think the most common is really mizuari, so cold water, ice, and the awamori about 50-50. Again, you're looking at 30% alcohol typically, mm-hmm. so you might go a little bit more heavy on the water. Again, that makes it just so light and refreshing, and it goes great with food uh, when you're drinking it that way. That's typically what I've seen, but then I, there is a fair amount of, I think, use of local citrus or fruits to make pretty great chuhais mm-hmm. with ipanshu. But then the, the unique way, I think you don't really see much in the shochu world is with with coffee. Yeah. So, awamori coffee is definitely a thing. You'll actually find it pre-packaged in convenience stores, uh, the awamori coffee, but then people just make it their own. Sometimes they're macerating coffee beans in awamori and then serving that on the rocks or with soda. Sometimes you're just mixing the coffee and the awamori directly. And that's pretty unique, I think, to, to Okinawa. it's It's a little bit what, like a little bit like a red bull vodka, right? <laughs> but like a really healthy way.
1: Yeah, it, and it it is surprisingly common. And really good. Sure. Sure. It's a match made in heaven, honestly. And another thing that I noticed, I was at a I was very fortunate because when I was there in March, the first weekend, there happened to be one of these big awamori events. And and it was the first time in like three years that they had been able to hold it. And it was over overbooked and everything. And they even held it inside. It was great. Um and it really struck me yet again that the industry as a whole is really trying to push highballs, mm-hmm. really trying to push the concept, uh, the service style of awamori on the rocks, but with sparkling water or seltzer, whatever you want to call it, added. And so when I walked around, there wasn't it wasn't really possible to get oyuari. It really was, they were just like, almost automatically would pour you a highball of one sort or another. So that was... Like, okay, yeah, this is a concerted effort by the Makers Association to popularize a new way to enjoy these drinks, and they do work very well with bubbles.
0: Yeah, sure. Some of them are are beautiful with bubbles, no question. Now, another thing that's been happening more recently in awamori, now, when we talk about kusu, when we're talking about aged awamori, it's almost always aged either in an inert vessel, an enamel-lined tank, or in ceramic pots, the tradition being ceramic. The long-aged, beautiful, beautiful, very expensive awamori is invariably in ceramic. But cask aging has become a thing in awamori. And some of those are now appearing in overseas markets as rice whiskeys, which sometimes happens with koji koji distillates. But another thing I was thinking about is how does the barrel aging affect the GI status? Because that's expressing the barrel more than than the spirit. Right. So I went back and I looked, I I read some Japanese government documents about the GI just to get a sense of, of what this means. And so we touched on on the top of the show, the the GI is a Ryukyu Awamori or Awamori made to specification in Okinawa. Right. But as I read through what's expected from a Ryukyu Awamori, the character of the liquor, which is essentially attributable to its geographic origin. Right. So you've got the sensory aspect which is described as pot distilled liquor made by distillation of a fermented mash made from black koji mold and local water using rice. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it has a robust flavor because the Thai rice in particular has a very high uh, fat and protein content, which gives you really rich mouthfeel and much more flavor than you'd get from Japanese domestic rice. And, atmospheric pot distillation is actually mentioned in this overview of the gi so even vacuum distilled isn't really going to give you the same expression mm-hmm. right now i don't think anybody's going to tell zampa that they can't put the gi mark on their on their vacuum distilled that one worry on zampa white yep um but really you know it talks about the vanilla aroma that comes through the rice but also the black koji mold creating a, almost mushroom and, and that these things are, are the characteristics of awamori. I thought it was very interesting. This is actually discussed. And then, of course, the use of black koji is a huge part of it, but the black koji specifically to specific to Okinawa, right? That, that That's part of the GIs, that they're using black koji that's cultivated in Okinawa. So, bringing, I think technically bringing black koji down from Kyushu and making awamori with it wouldn't really qualify for the spirit of the GI, whether anybody's actually checking it. Another part of it is that that the natural ingredients that are used, the fact that they're using this long trading tradition with Siam, which is now Thailand, and that Thai rice is is the de facto standard for what they make because of that history of Okinawa as a trading hub. And then the other thing is the human factor, the fact that this is made by Okinawans in Okinawa and this is what they've been drinking for, for a long time. And the, the essence of the of the people making it, right? Which, you know, we don't always think of that as being part of the terroir or part of, of a geographical indication, but it makes perfect sense, right? So there's so much more than the rules, right? Black koji, rice, single pot distilled in Okinawa. Another point that was made very clearly in this document is the water source. The, the Okinawan water is actually quite hard by Japanese standards because of the kind of of a groundwater that they that they use right because it's it's passing through limestone so you get a different mouthfeel a different texture in for awamori made in okinawa than you would for making it in other parts of japan or other parts of the world and the final part of it is with the production and it has to be from okinawan water the rice can be from overseas right the rice can be from thailand but it has to be fermented and distilled in okinawa using koji and water from. Okinawa in a pot still, stored, aged in Okinawa, and filled in the containers in which it's going to be sold to customers in Okinawa. So you have to bottle it in Okinawa for it to be Ryukyu Awamori. Mm -hmm. Now, you can make Awamori anywhere. You can't make Ryukyu Awamori anywhere except by those specifications. But there is so much to unpack in that spirit of the GI, right? (laughs) Sure. Even though that's not what's technically in the document, this is what people think the GI is and this is a this is from the, the tax tax agency, this document that I was referring to, and I'll I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Mm-hmm. But it's pretty pretty fascinating that there's so much thought putting into what really constitutes a UQ Awamori. And that's what got me thinking, does barrel age count? Does vacuum distilled count? Mm-hmm. Not everything made in Okinawa necessarily qualifies as the UQ Awamori by this standard. Yeah. So I'd be curious about your thoughts about all that. I just threw a lot at you without having told you I was gonna do that, but sometimes we gotta improv.
1: Yeah, I I mean, um that is certainly a lot more detailed than is typically bandied about when talking about the the rules surrounding Ryukyu Awamori. Clearly, the people at Higa distillery that make Zampa white have a different understanding because they do put the G. i symbol on Zampa white. And clearly the people at Helios distillery who are the makers of a a barrel-aged Awamori called Kura, probably the most famous uh and most widely um or one of the more widely consumed barrel aged awamori from the islands they also clearly write Ryukyu awamori on the label in both english and japanese mm-hmm. so very interesting um i i sometimes i i wonder who's got the correct information and and clearly if the makers do not then nobody's really checking up on them because they're clearly breaking the rules <laughs> um but then but then again i mean who's it's not really I'm not sure who enforces those rules. Is it the tax office or is it the, the WTO, I wonder? Um,
0: so at any rate, um, that's, that's my quick reaction to that. As I understand it, within the Okinawa Awamori Distillers Association, there is a, a, a UQGI management committee. So you have to apply for use of the mark to that committee and, and then they approve it. So it's an internal approval. By the okinawa distillers association and of course when you're talking about zampa and you're talking about uh Kura, kuda right with um from helios you're talking about two of the biggest makers in in the country or at least in, in okinawa mm-hmm. uh, so of course they're going to get the gi when they ask for it yeah but uh you know we're not here to throw anybody under the bus and of course there are i i imagine the people on that committee have a much better understanding of the gi than than we do I would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I'm going by an English translation of a of a tax office document, but it's a it's just it was just interesting for me to think about that just because you meet the letter of the rule for a GI maybe doesn't mean that you meet the spirit of the GI. Mm-hmm. So are you sipping on anything?
1: Yeah. I brought no, I sent a bunch of bottles of Yone Shima's Awamori to myself and they arrived yesterday, so I have cracked a bottle of Hotaru, which is a you know, firefly uh, reference, and really nice small batch awamori that is actually surprisingly difficult to get a hold of. So when I went to the distillery, I made sure to take plenty of it off their hands.
0: Nice. How about you? I'm actually, for those of you who saw our live stream when Jake Tenenbaum was visiting from the States, and he and I did a a live stream from Ohori Park here in Fukuoka, and we made awamori coffee on, on air. I am having awamori coffee actually with the same awamori uh, that we used on that episode, which is a 1998 vintage of Zampa, uh, Mm. which is a little insane to mix that with coffee, but uh, it's what I had at hand and it was great on that episode. And so I decided to try it again. And basically I added a little milk this time, which I normally don't do when I'm making awamori coffee, but it almost came out like a mocha, the sweetness of the awamori. And it actually brought up almost some chocolate notes. Ah, uh, out of the coffee and I, I actually finished it before we finished the the recording so oh geez i apparently liked it quite a bit um that's good yeah no it was it was it was fantastic one one little um maybe last thought that uh, in reflecting on this this is a, a a story i hadn't hadn't heard before but apparently and we talked about this in episode three but Aomori was used as currency by the royal family, and and the commoners were prohibited from drinking it, or at least um, procuring it for themselves. If it was given to them, they could ha- they could drink it. But because Aomori was so valuable, and apparently piracy, as you can imagine, was a big thing in Okinawa, you know, hundreds of years ago, when they were transporting Aomori by ship to different islands, or t- to trade with other countries, or to to send it off to Tokyo as a you know to the, to the sh- Tokugawa shogunate as a, as tribute, that sort of thing, they would actually send uh, a fighting force, like security details on the ships to protect the stock. And those people were all trained in karate, the Okinawan fighting style yeah. right? that, that originated in Okinawa. And it was actually experts in karate who are guarding the, <laughs> guarding the alamori on the boats. So
1: priorities, I, I understand,
0: makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, but it, probably the two biggest uh, cultural exports from Okinawa, right? Is awamori and, and, and karate. So I think that's fair. I thought that was a fun, fun little story, but this was fun. This was a, a really uh, enjoyable episode. I learned a lot. Hopefully our listeners did as well. Yep.
1: Well, thank you all very much for listening. And if you have not already, then please consider rating and reviewing the Japan Distilled podcast wherever you enjoy listening to it. It really does help others to find the show. And please, of course, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram. You can find me at Chris Pellegrini on Twitter and at Christopher Pellegrini
0: on Instagram. You can reach me at Japan Distilled on both Twitter and Instagram. And please check out our website, japandistilled.com, for show notes for this and every other episode. And please tune in to our Japan Distilled show Tuesday every Tuesday evening, 9 p.m. Eastern in the States and 10 a.m. Wednesday here in Japan.
1: And of course, don't forget to sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash japan distilled.
0: I promise we have some goodies coming soon. Kanpai. Kanpai. We hope you've enjoyed this episode
1: of the Japan Distilled podcast. This has been Christopher Pellegrini with my co-host Stephen Lyman. Our theme song is Begin Anywhere by the very talented Tomoko Miyata. Audio engineering by the incomparable Rich Pav, who also edits the fantastic Uncanny Japan podcast with Teresa Matsuura. Please give that a listen as well if you're interested in Japanese fables and ghost stories.